Well, good morning. My name is Pastor Dale. I'm one of the pastors here at Seacoast and part of the teaching team, and I have a high honor. I am thrilled Ryan actually lets me be the closer. Now, if you're in baseball and you're the closer, you come in for what inning? Huh, the ninth inning, right? Because you've got to save the day and close the game out, right? Because the rest of the team's already got you ahead. Now, you're just there to close it out. Well, I'm kind of the closer of 1 Corinthians because I got the last chapter, chapter 16. But we're going to do more than close it out. What we're going to do is we're going to also look back at the game. We're going to look back at where we have been as we've moved through this book and look some of the major themes of the book. And then we're going to see that even the closing of the book in chapter 16 gives us some great insights in how to actually now put this into practice as we live out our faith. You know, as I get a little bit older, you may be surprised to learn I have grandchildren. Can you believe that? Say no. <clears throat> Say no, no way. You're not old enough to have grandchildren, right? Yes, you know, but yes, I do. I have grandchildren and, uh, and I have kids. And the more that I get a little bit older, I kind of relate to the Apostle Paul. Not that I'm the Apostle Paul, okay? But the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter to the Corinthian church, he thought like a father. He thought like a grandfather to his churches. So when he's writing this letter, the first thing I want you to tune into is actually not chapter 16, but back in chapter 1. Let's go back to where it all began. Dear Church was the name of the series. And listen in chapter 1 to the context before we get into chapter 16. Paul says, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. He says, I'm writing verse 2 to the church, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who are in every place, along with all who are in every place, every city, who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 4, now just listen to this. Listen for some repetition. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in Christ Jesus, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ Jesus was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of who? the Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end to be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is when he returns. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And with those nine verses, Paul says, dear church, and he starts this book. And in nine verses, he mentions Jesus Christ 10 times. Did you catch that? 10 times in nine verses, he points us to something about Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ who has called us into life. It's by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are, we are secured by the Lord Jesus Christ to the end who will make us blameless before him when we die and meet him in heaven someday or when he returns to see his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He repeats Jesus 10 times in nine verses as he gives thanks to that church. 
Now, one of the things he doesn't do, which is a little different, because in every one of his other letters to other churches, he also says, and I thank God for your faith or your love or your hope or something about them. In this case, he just thanks God, thanks God, thanks God. I just thank Jesus over and over again for giving you life. Because this would be a tough letter for Paul to write. This is a love letter from God to his children, delivered through the spiritual father, the apostle Paul, the spiritual father to that church. It's kind of like grandpa writing his final or a letter to his children who are away at college or off on their own as young adults trying to figure out life. And the uniqueness of the beginning of this book sets up the next chapters all the way through chapter 14 especially because what he does is he he just thanks them. He gives thanks to God for what Jesus Christ has done to bring life to this church in this massive, wealthy, prosperous, educated city called Corinth. That Jesus has come to the slaves and to the free, to the rich and to the poor, and he has brought them together in this church. But in this case, he doesn't really have anything real positive to esteem them for, except the work that Jesus is doing. And that's why in verse 10 of chapter 1, he says this, now I exhort you, brethren, I got to challenge you. You need some exhortation, some correction, some challenge. And really, from chapter 1 through especially chapter 14, he begins to just challenge them because they have a series of dysfunctions in their church. They have a series of, of sins that they're ignoring. And in some cases, they're making a bigger deal than they should make out of small issues. And in that case, he teaches them about the freedom we have in Christ to to, in terms of lifestyle issues, to, to, uh, to, to be different. But then they're making not enough of a deal out of other major sins, for example, in the body. There's sexual immorality being totally ignored and, and, and other issues that they should be a big deal, but they're ignoring them. And things that should not be a big deal, they're all hung up on and they're fighting with each other and in division. <clears throat> so... I call this a love letter with tough lessons. So it's a love letter delivered from the Apostle Paul, really from God himself. He inspired the writing of this. We know Scripture is inspired by God. So it's God's love letter through the spiritual father named the Apostle Paul to not only God's children, but to his kids. That's why it's so personal. That's why it's so full of both love, but also, you know, I got to say some tough things to you. So we've been working our way through, and I am so proud of our teaching team as they've moved through passage by passage, tackling issues, not skipping issues, tackling all kinds of issues. Because they're not just issues for the Corinthians, they're the issues for the church of Encinitas and Carlsbad and San Marcos and, you know, and, and Del Mar and, and, and the coast of California. They're the issues of the church I deal with a lot now in Africa. Because they're global issues, they're issues of the human heart, they're issues that almost every church struggles with at times. He moves through issue to issue. And then, all of a sudden, 
he, highlight, he highlights for them uh, the centrality of Jesus. He does it first early in chapter 1, just to show you how you see this all through the book. For example, let me just pick one. Chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, the good news, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us being saved, it is the power of God. It's the word of God and the word of the gospel that he calls them to. And he even tells them, sometimes the culture of Corinth will think you're foolish. The Greek mind will think you're foolish. The Jewish mind will stumble over this and say, well, that can't be true, you know, because grace is a free gift. That didn't relate well to them. And, 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 the, and the Greeks were looking for something more philosophically uh, showy and, and full of human wisdom. And he says, you know something, sometimes the wisdom of God will look like foolishness to man. So he says, we've got to talk about God's perspective on these issues. And he begins to unpack these issues piece by piece. Down in verse 23 of chapter 1, he says, For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks ask for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. How can God die on a cross for our sins? That doesn't make logical sense, but it happened. So it was very hard for the Jews to even begin to relate to that. He says, and to the Gentiles, it's foolishness. It's not philosophically fancy enough. But, verse 24, but for those of us who are called, both Jews or Greeks, any culture, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The power of God and the wisdom of God is in Christ Jesus. We preach Christ crucified. Now, you go through the next few chapters. He works through all these different issues. And then we look at the last chapter, chapter 15, that sets up today's sermon on chapter 16. But I want you to see chapter 15 and again see the centrality of this message. Because what he says to them again was this. Chapter 15, early verses. He says... Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you and which you received, by which you were saved, by which you stand fast, the word in which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared to all these different groups. He's alive. The death and resurrection of Christ and his offer of life to discover life in Christ by the grace of God as a free gift is a radical idea that was never in any world religion up to this date and still isn't. That's the distinctive of Christianity. By grace, we are saved through faith, and that's not something we do of ourselves. It is a gift is the word, right? It is a gift from God. And he says in chapter 1, that's our foundation. Chapter 15, he says, that's our foundation. And the reason we know it's true is we have a living Christ. We don't have some philosopher or founder of a religious movement who said he knew the truth and then he died and he's buried. 
This one said, this is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Remember that? Jesus said that. And he says, and the reason you'll know that that's true is I will rise from the dead. So Christ, risen, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, becomes the foundation of our ultimate defense of our faith. It's why we know it's true and it's worth our life. It's worth putting our trust in him. But now Paul, coming out of chapter 15, he wraps chapter 15 with this verse. And with this, we want to launch into summarizing the lessons of the closing chapter. You ready? Here we go. Here's the verse on the screen. Therefore, my beloved brethren, this is chapter 1558, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. In other words, now Paul begins to say, so because of the resurrection, because of the gospel and the good news of what Christ has done for you, because you have in Christ all that you need, now step up, stand up, be strong, and let's go do something. He uses that phrase, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your toil is not in vain. What's that mean? What that means is this. In Christ, you not only discover life and life eternal, you discover purpose. Your significance in life is rooted and grounded in the fact that you know the living God and the answer to the greatest question, which is how can I be forgiven of my sins, be brought to life, not now but for eternity? That is the greatest question on planet Earth to this day. You can go to any culture and any planet, and that's the big question. So in chapter 16, Paul is wrapping up the book. But as he goes to wrap up the book, he begins in chapter 16, now concerning, because he realizes there's a couple things that we haven't talked about yet. And before I put a amen on the end of this book and say, see you later, hope to come see you soon, which he's going to do. He says, here's a few things for you to work on while you wait for me to come visit you. Are you ready? Pick it up. Chapter 16. I'm actually going to show you five. And to make it easy on you, I actually gave you an outline today which has these five typed out in summary. Okay? So if you track on the outline, it'll be easy for you. All right? Here we go. Now, concerning the collection for the saints. As I directed the churches in Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside, that is a collection, a little money, put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collection has to be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, you choose someone to be accountable for your money. I will send them with letters from me and from you to carry your gift to Jerusalem and if it's fitting for me to go also, I'll go with them also. You know, I may go or I may not go, but I'll make sure your gift gets delivered with letters to the church in Jerusalem. What in the world is he saying? Here's the principle. I'm going to take each of these sections and show you not just how it applied to the Corinthians, but how I think it applies to us today. What he's saying is, you know something, we spent 14 chapters now talking about your problems 
trying to help fix you, trying to help point you back to Christ because you've got a lot of dysfunction in your church. But guess what? Being part of the body of Jesus Christ is not just about your Corinthian church. You are connected globally. When you think of what it means to be a Christian, to be part of the body of Christ, it is global. Therefore, principle one, we should all think global with compassion and generosity. That's my summary of the first four verses. Think global with compassion and generosity. In other words, don't just look out for yourself, look out for others. Uh, What was going on, by the way, was the church in Jerusalem at that time was probably the most persecuted of the churches. Can you imagine this church movement born of the Jewish Messiah starting in Jerusalem, but then spreading around the Mediterranean world? They were not only being being persecuted by the Romans, they're being persecuted by the Jews also at that time in history. So many, many people in the early church of Jerusalem literally were kicked out of their families if they came to faith in Christ because it's like you're believing in a heresy. They were kicked out of their families. They were kicked out of their marriages. They were disowned by their parents. We know from Acts chapter 6 that the church was exploding in size, but it was being overrun with widows even who weren't even being fed and who were desperate. So this was a very impoverished church. So what Paul had done By the Spirit of God, he had told all the churches of the Mediterranean world, let's take up a contribution and let's put aside some of our money and let's give on a regular planned basis a special gift to help the church in Jerusalem because they are part of us. When Becky and I go to Africa and uh, teach, we often teach different countries, and I have a little rhythm that I've developed. I on day one, when I say hello to them, they're used to Americans coming, and they're used to Americans saying, I bring you greetings from the American church. I don't say that. In fact, I shock them. I usually say it like this. If you're my, let's pretend you're my Tanzanian audience, okay? I would say to you, hey, it's great to be with you here in Tanzania, uh, but I want to tell you, I do not bring you greetings from the American church. And they just kind of look at me like, why would you say that? I said, because the American church doesn't exist. In fact, the Tanzanian church doesn't exist. The Kenyan church doesn't exist. The Congolese church doesn't exist. Because when I read my Bible, there's only one church, capital C. And that church exists in Tanzania, in America, in Congo, but yet we are one global church. So I bring you greetings from the church in America, not the American church. Jesus doesn't have an American church. He has one church. It's the body of Christ. And it's important that we as followers of Christ think global as we follow Christ. And that we have compassion and generosity when we see needs around the world. Now, in this case, it was the church in Jerusalem. So what are the principles? One thing I love about this little section, some people often ask me, what does the New Testament teach about giving? And even though this is to take a special offering for the church of Jerusalem, I do think that when I compare this passage, one single verse in verse 2 gives me three principles about generosity expressed through giving. 
And, uh, and the same three principles are reinforced in other passages uh, and could be applied to even what Ryan mentioned, I didn't know he was going to mention that, that of, of giving to Seacoast as your church. Uh, the discipline of giving, there's three key principles in this one single verse. So I love it because it's the short version of what is taught in longer language elsewhere. Here it is. Look at verse 2 again. He says in verse 2, on the first day of every week, which for them was Sunday, they nicknamed Sunday the first day of the week. It didn't used to be, but it was the resurrection day, so it's the day they began to worship. Um, before that, the Jews worshiped, by the way, on Saturday, right? Saturday was the Jewish Sabbath. The Christians, in honor of the resurrection, began to worship on Sundays. Um, <clears throat> here's, what they, here's what he says. On the first day of every week, in other words, as you think about your week coming and worship, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper for this purpose. What do you learn from that? Compassionate generosity is personal. It's for each one. In other words, every Christian is called to in some way participate in compassionate generosity. Number two, it is planned. It's a planned priority. Do we have this on PowerPoint, I think? There we go. Nope, we go back. We don't have this. That's all right. I can just teach it. Back up one. Nope, wrong way. Back again. There we go. Just stay there. Just remember three Ps. Are you ready? It's personal. It's each one. Never in the Bible do they say, we think everyone should give the same amount. No, no, no. It's a personal thing. Number two, it's planned, making it a priority. Two more P words, actually. A planned priority. He says, on the first day of the week, you set this aside. So you don't wait till the end of the week to see if you have any money in the bank. You make this a priority and do it on the first. It's one of the first things you do. For Becky and I, the way we apply this in our life is we have predecided and planned what we are going to give to Christ through our church here at Seacoast and also elsewhere. And we, we write those checks or we go online and do that giving as the first bill we pay. We don't wait to pay all the other bills to see if anything's left. We learned years ago, if we do that, we're in trouble. So what we do personally, Becky and I, we do it as a planned priority, um, as our first most important thing we give. And, and then thirdly, it's proportionate to, one's, to God's provision. It says, do it as he may prosper. And this is a principle in Scripture that is, as God blesses me more, God wants me to be more generous. And the more he blesses me, the more I can be more and more generous. So it's proportional. Uh, this is why Jesus, for example, the most excited he ever got about someone's giving was a gal called the widow, and she gave a mite, which is like a penny, kind of, okay? So she gave just the tiniest coin, but it was all she had. So with God, he's more impressed with our sacrifice than our size of our check. He's more impressed with our faith in him that's expressed through giving. Because when you give, you're saying, God, I want to trust you to meet my needs, make you my, my priority. I don't mind telling you that for Becky and I, since we've been married, we've always said we're going to give at least 10% of what God blesses us with, and we'll adjust and live off of 90%. Now, for some of you who have never even heard of this idea, right now you're thinking, oh my gosh, if I, had, if I gave 10% of everything I receive, uh, that, that would wreck my budget. I couldn't afford that. Well, maybe you have to work your way up to that. 
But let me tell you something. For most of us here in America, living off 90% of what God blesses us with is very possible if we make our giving a priority on the front end. So we lead with 10%. That's just what we do. That's what we do. But my challenge is at least understand this biblical principle. As God blesses, as you have been prospered, God asks you to be even more generous. That's the principle. That's the principle. I think it applied to them here. It also is taught elsewhere uh, in terms of other passages on giving. So let me just tease you with a couple quick stats about the world we live in today. Our problem is not the church in Jerusalem, although the church in Jerusalem is persecuted and it's struggling, so they do need help. But let me go global with you. Today, 80% of all evangelical Christians live in Latin America, Africa, or Asia. 80%. Only 20% of evangelical Christians who believe the Bible and the gospel today live in what we call the West. We are part of the 20%. The 80% is elsewhere. 85% of all global pastors have no formal training. They have a passion for Jesus and a calling, and they open their Bible and do the best they can. In Africa, it's 90%, which is how God has uniquely turned our heart, as one of your missionaries, by the way, to focus on Africa. Don't, shouldn't be everybody's focus, but for Becky and I, that's become our focus. And training these pastors who are leading this exploding church uh, is our passion. And, and we couldn't do it without you as one of our supporting churches. So thank you. When you give, as Ryan mentioned earlier, you're not just given to turn the lights on in this place. You're given to help our youth ministry, our children's ministry. You're also given to help the church in Africa. And they thank you for that. So be aware of that. Now, some of you are sitting there thinking, as I used to think, yeah, but Dale, this is for like really wealthy people. And hey, it's expensive to live here. And, you know, so I'm not sure this is really for me. Let me show you one more quick item about the world, and then we'll move on. This little chart, this is put out by the World Bank, uh, summarizes on a global scale income. Now, I know you wouldn't be able to read all the details in here, but let me summarize it. About one billion people live on about $1 per day. I've met some of them. I know they're pastors. We were with them in the highlands of Rwanda just this past year. Women who pick tea that you drink, good Rwandan tea for 75 cents a day, and then they farm to try to survive. That's the condition of about 1 billion people. Another 2 billion people live on about $2 per day. Another billion people actually live on about $5 per day or less. Now, if you do the math on that, two-thirds of the world's population is living on $5 a day or less. They're in survival mode. And then there's about 1.7 billion who make between 1,500 and 20,000 a year. What I want you to notice is, see the little red triangle? Those are the people on the planet that make $20,000 a year and up. You can be on welfare in the U.S. and make that. So what I'm saying is I'm pretty safe in assuming that most of us are in the little red triangle on the very top of this pyramid. 
And I don't share that in any way to try to shame you or manipulate you to do this or that with your money. I just want to wake you up to the fact that most of our problems are what I call rich man problems because I'm a rich man. Globally, I'm a very rich man. I'm way beyond 20000 a year in family income. So it doesn't mean that I don't realize that, man, but it's more expensive to live here than it is in Africa. Well, of course it is. But I just want us to just be aware as we pray, as we give, as we plan our life, just as the Apostle Paul reminded what was one of his wealthier churches in Corinth, hey, don't forget the poor in Jerusalem and be generous, be generous. Now, some would say, well, this didn't matter much to Paul because he saved it till his last chapter. Let me give you a little clue. If you fast forward to 2 Corinthians, when he writes them another letter, he spends two whole chapters unpacking this in detail because they did not follow through on their promise. And he takes two chapters to teach them about how to have joy in generosity. So if you want to read the rest of the story, read 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Let's move on. What's the second principle? These are a little harder to kind of pick out, but let me show them to you. Verse 5, here we go. It says, but I, I will come to you, I'm coming, after I go through Macedonia. For I'm going, I'm going to go through Macedonia first, then I'll be to see you. By the way, the Macedonian church was the poor church. And if you read 2 Corinthians 8, it begins with Paul saying, imitate the church of Macedonia, who gave out of their poverty when you haven't given out of your wealth. So they're a good church to learn from. He says, and perhaps I'll stay with you and even spend the winter with you so that I may, you may send me on my way wherever I may go next. For I do not wish to just see you now in passing. Now listen to this. He's saying, I don't want to just come and do a quick visit with you. For I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But I'll remain in Ephesus for now until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective ministry has opened up for me, and there are many adversaries or enemies. Now, that's an interesting section. When I studied it, I thought, what's he trying to say to us? He's saying this, Paul believed in living strategically, but staying flexible. He says, look, I'm planning to come to you, but right now is not the best time because I can tell you need more than a short visit from me. You need for me to spend some serious time with you. So he was strategically planning his ministry. But he also said, if the Lord permits, because I never know if this might change. And we see that, that, you know, the Apostle Paul was strategic. He even picked the cities that he went to because they were influential key hub cities of ideas and philosophies like Corinth. So, like Ephesus, but, but he was very strategic. And I think when I apply that to my life or to yours, it's this. God wants all of us to be looking for living strategically, staying flexible, and looking for doors of opportunity. He says there are great doors of opportunity before us, but yet strong opposition. So, be strategic, but don't be afraid because if you're following God's will into something he wants you to do, Paul didn't see enemies or opposition and go, oh, I must be in the wrong place. No, he said, hey, there's great opportunities here. That's probably why there's also a lot of opposition. 
so I'm staying. Now, my thinking is, a lot of opposition, I'm leaving. Let me get out of here. Let me go to a city that's more peaceful, where they like me. No, no, no. He said, because the gospel was flourishing in Ephesus, even in the midst of much opposition, he says, I'm staying put until I think God is ready to move me on. So I think the principle for you and me living right here on the coast of California is when I get out of bed in the morning, I should pray this prayer, God, use me. God, use me. Make this a strategic investment of my life for you. Uh, I think Serve Day next week is another great opportunity where I love the fact that the church is doing Serve Day. Now, I heard one person say, so we don't have church next week. Answer to that, Pastor Ryan would say, that's not the case. The church is meeting next week, but it's meeting out there instead of in here. Because the church is not this building, and the church is not this worship service. The church is you. It's the body of Christ. And that's exciting. That's a major theme in 1 Corinthians. So I know one friend of mine that when he does this, he says, this is church has left the building Sunday. The church is meeting, but we're just going out there. And it's a great way to show the community the love of Christ. Third principle. What else do we learn from this passage? Well, then he says in verse 12, he says, but since I can't come to you right now, but concerning Apollos, our brethren, uh, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come right now, but he'll come when he has opportunity. He'll come soon. Uh, And he says in verse 10, I jumped over one. He says, now if Timothy comes, see to it that you that it's, it's not without cause to be afraid. In other words, make sure you're respectful of Timothy, for he's there to do the Lord's work, and I'm there, I am doing it also. So let no one despise Timothy, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me and give me a report on how you're doing is the idea, uh, for I expect him with the brethren. So the idea is this. What, what's Paul saying? Paul's saying, you know, I can't be everywhere. So I'm going to send Timothy and Apollos to help you out until I come. And and what it's modeling for us is the third key principle in this closing chapter. Paul was multiplying himself as we should. He viewed the church, as we say here at Seacoast, as a family of disciples, growing, being transformed by the word of God. Another way to say it is this, Paul always believed in being a mentor and having a mentor. Be a mentor, have a mentor. And that's not just for the Apostle Paul, that's for you and me. That the way you live life, whether you're a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, a carpenter, the best way to be the best person you can be, and it includes your spiritual life as well, is be a mentor, have a mentor. Have someone, get to know someone a little further down the road in life than you are and learn from them with humility. But then always be reaching back and looking for someone who needs a hand up and helping them to grow and be a mentor to them as well. In Africa, we use this, they, they have a saying that the most, the safest way to go up a deep mountain trail is always reaching up and always reaching back. It's an old African proverb. And I think that's what Paul was doing. He's modeling mentorship for you and me. So if you want to do life, reach up, reach back. Number four, fourth principle. 
Stand strong and don't be surprised or expect resistance. Don't be surprised by resistance. I love this short little two-verse section. Be on the alert, verse 13. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men and be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now, when I looked at those, there's, it's a little set. In fact, I'll put them up on the screen for you. Stay, be alert, stand firm in the faith, be strong, and love always. Just bring up the list. There we go. Now, when I look at that, when I look at that set, that's why I use the phrase, stand strong, expecting resistance. Because to be blunt, when you're, when you're challenged to be strong, to be brave, one translation translates it, be brave. When you need to be brave or strong or courageous and stand firm, it's because there's resistance. So the big lesson here is this, following Jesus Christ in Corinth or following Jesus Christ in Encinitas or this part of California, expect resistance from the culture. You're going to have to learn that you now follow a different Lord, a different Savior, a different wisdom, that we are obedient to a different book called the Word of God that we follow. And where it is clear, we want to be clear and we want to follow it and, 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 and let it be our guide and let Christ in His grace and His Spirit empower us. But re, don't be surprised that we are called to be different than our culture. It was true in Corinth. It'll be true here in Encinitas. But stand strong. I love the fact that he ends it with, and whatever you do, do it in love. Whatever you do, do it in love. Love always. 1 Corinthians 13 is the heart of this book. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? What did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the greatest, foremost commandment. 1 Corinthians 13 says three things are really central to life, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is what? It's love. See, loving, loving like Jesus, loving unconditionally, loving people that you disagree with or people that are different than us, loving one another remarkably is the hallmark of a Jesus follower. Surprise people with how you love them, especially the unlovely. Surprise them with grace. Surprise them with love. In everything we do, you, you can use the test, is this loving like Jesus? And if the answer is no, then back off. Back off. And last but not least, we don't have time to really deal with this one, but then he, he rattles off. And by the way, I'm so thankful for, and he names several of their key leaders. And he basically says, respect your leaders and know that you are loved. Not just by me, but by the churches all around the world. And he sends them expressions of greetings and love from this person, that person, this church, that church. Why? Because we are global. You're not just part of Seacoast. You're part of the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ on planet Earth. Go forth and love like Jesus. Go forth in the power of his gospel. And he will give your life purpose. I guarantee that. Better yet, 
He guarantees it. Pray with me. Father God, thank you. We thank you so much for the fact that you have called us in this book to be part of a global body of Christ founded on the foundation of the gospel and the word of God. The work of Christ, his death, his resurrection, and the spirit that he sent to indwell his body. Father, thank you that we're all different because the body needs different parts. As we learned a few weeks back, even the uh, pinky toe is as important as the eyes or the nose or the feet or the hands. Thank you for the diversity of the body of Christ. Thank you for the mission that you have given us at Seacoast to bring life to people and to help them learn what it looks like to walk in his love, in his grace, to follow him. So as we worship you now, Father, I pray that we would pause for a second and I would challenge each of us to simply say, Lord Jesus, teach me the lessons of this book. Help me to think global with generosity, to think local with generosity, to think gospel in all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.